everyone has skin, but no one really talks about it very much. You might talk about it to your dermatologist, or you might talk about it to your kids a little bit, if they, if they have a scrape or a problem with their skin, a rash or something. But they don't think about it very much. And often, when people think about it, they think about it in very narrow terms. If you go to a library, you might find a book on tattoos and tattoo designs, or how to, uh, how to eliminate wrinkles, written by a dermatologist. But there are very few books or treatments of any kind about how our skin came to be as it is, why we have human-looking skin, what is unique about human skin, and why should we bother uh, taking any notice of it. And so what I thought I would do for the first few minutes today is, is chat with you about a few of the things that I consider to be of signal importance with respect to human skin. And I hope that by talking about some of these characteristics and features, this will enliven you to ask questions and we can have a little bit of a back and forth about any particular aspect that you find interesting or riveting. Human skin is not very different in its basic structure from the skin of most animals that are walking around. If you look at your dog or your cat or your horse or your monkey, if you happen to have a monkey as a pet, you'll find that the, uh, their skin is remarkably similar in its basic structure to ours. But obviously their skin looks very different from the outside because it's covered with hair or fur. So the first really remarkable thing about humans is that their skin is naked, functionally. We have little hairs on the surface of most of our body, but for most of us, you can't really see them very clearly. And then we've got these tufts of hair elsewhere. We've got some tufts, some of us more than others, have tufts of hair on the tops of our heads, in our armpits, and at our groin, strategically placed for good reasons, which we can go to later. But for most of our bodies, we are functionally hairless. So this is, this is one uniqueness. The second uniqueness is that going along with this hairlessness is that we're very sweaty. Okay, you may have experienced this just uh, as you walked uh, along Allen Street today. It's quite hot. If you were wearing something dark in particular, I would guess that you built up a little bit of a sweat walking here. That sweat turns out to be extremely important to the human economy, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Going to the next uniqueness is that you can see just from looking around us in this room that human skin comes in a variety of natural colors. It's not just one species, one color. We come in a variety of colors from the very darkest ebony to the very palest near ivory color. And this is remarkable and unique for our to our species. The other last and very important unique feature of human skin is that compared to other animals, we actually do things to our skin. We decorate it. We use it as a canvas for self-expression. We may put some temporary decoration on it. We put, may put makeup on it. We may decide, well, we want some more permanent thing on our skin, such as a tattoo or a piercing or something else. These features have great social significance that I'll go uh, to in just a second. So I just wanted to 
uh, delve into each one of these uniquenesses a little bit more deeply, which I think will give you lots of grounds to ask questions and for us to enter into an interchange. The first thing about nakedness. Now, nakedness and sweatiness actually go together, so we're going to discuss them together. In the course of, of the evolution of our lineage, trying to reconstruct the evolution of skin is really tricky because we don't have any fossil skin. Skin decays when animals die. And so the kinds of evidence that we put together to understand the evolution of skin is all indirect anatomical and molecular evidence. But it's nonetheless very good evidence and very clear. And it points to the fact that we've had naked skin for a long time in our human lineage and that this nakedness has been necessary for us in order that we can be more efficient sweaters. Humans and other primates, the group to which we belong, are excellent at losing body heat through sweat. If you look at all the animals around us, your typical dog is going to pant to lose heat, right? Your typical sheep out on one of the pastures here will actually not pant. It won't sweat. It loses heat through a, a very interesting mechanism at the base of its brain that allows it to cool a lot of, of blood flowing to its brain in particular by a system of veins around its nose. Very interesting. But we don't have that as primates. Primates lose body heat through sweating. And the more active the primate, the more numerous are its sweat glands. We come from a lineage of apes, African apes, that have a moderate number of sweat glands per unit area of skin. And in the course of our evolution, we had to evolve a larger number of sweat glands on our skin in order to accommodate an increased range of activity. When we look at the skeletons of ancient humans that lived around two million years ago, we see that they're more or less of the same build as we are, and that they were extremely energetic animals, very much uh, or quite similar in their patterns of activity to modern humans. And so they must have had the same abilities to cool themselves with sweat glands. And we know from a variety of studies, which I won't elaborate on, that we had excellent sweating capabilities from about two million years ago to the present. So we've been excellent, mostly hairless sweaters. Hairlessness was necessary because it's great if you can sweat, but it's no good sweating into a blanket. When animals, like when a horse sweats a lot or other animals sweat a lot, they actually lose their ability to keep cool because their hair becomes compressed and their ability to lose heat through evaporation is limited. So the more hair that you lose, the more cool that you can become through sweating. And this is really why we became hairless, excellent sweaters. So that leaves us with a really interesting problem, because here we are, 
the ancestral form of our lineage around two million years ago, living only in equatorial Africa. And here we are, sweating, hairless, walking around, foraging, scavenging, doing interesting things. Hairless skin without pigment is very subject to burning. How many of you have had a bad sunburn in your life? Yeah, most of you. Uh, because at least before, the, well, in the last 20 years, people have become much more aware of the sun. But prior to that, getting a lot of sun and, and getting a sunburn was fairly common. And uh, people didn't protect themselves very well from the sun. Well, imagine our ancient forebears in equatorial Africa, hairless, sweating, and with essentially unprotected skin. <coughs> Unpigmented skin or lightly pigmented skin is very susceptible to damage. And this damage is not just the kind that causes you to have wrinkles or develop skin cancer when you're older. It's a very serious kind of damage to the DNA in your body because ultraviolet light from the sun can actually penetrate deeply into the skin and destroy DNA and other molecules that are essential for normal health and normal reproduction. So all of a sudden, the sun shining on your skin doesn't become just sort of bad for you and it might cause a little bit of sunburn and discomfort. It becomes a positive liability. And it was at this time in our evolutionary history that we as a species, as our ancestral form, became darkly pigmented. If we could roll back the clock all of us around two million years ago, all of our forebears living in equatorial Africa were darkly pigmented. The story of skin pigmentation then starts out really at this common denominator and then becomes really interesting as we go through time and this ancient human population disperses and starts to move out of Africa. For those of you who are familiar with some aspects of human evolution, you know that this occurred quite quickly, and we have humans sort of going into Eastern Asia, Central Asia, and much later into Europe over the course of the next million or so years. Now, what happens as people go into these places is that their skin color underwent major changes. And this is because you have pigment in your skin not only to protect against the dangerous effects of ultraviolet radiation in the sun, but also because the amount of pigment regulates the amount of ultraviolet radiation that makes vitamin D in the skin. So you have this really interesting evolutionary equation, in a sense, that's occurring in your skin all the time. The pigment is filtering out a certain amount of ultraviolet radiation and protecting you from certain wavelengths of ultraviolet radiation, but it's also allowing a little bit in so that you can make vitamin D. Organisms like humans are remarkable in that through the course of evolution by natural selection, we come up with these interesting compromises in biology. So we tinker 
with the amount of pigmentation in skin in order to get that equation just right so that we get enough protection and yet allow enough ultraviolet radiation to begin the production of vitamin D. What's really interesting is that as you get outside of the tropics, outside of equatorial areas where humans first evolved, is that there isn't very much of the type of ultraviolet radiation that makes vitamin D in the skin. And yet we need vitamin D to be healthy. And so that is why as humans moved into various northern and far southern parts of the old world in our ancient history, that we lost some pigmentation. And that's why many of you in this room have lightly pigmented skin, because your ancestors come from areas, especially of northern Europe and a few of northern Asia, that have very little ultraviolet radiation that can cause vitamin D production. So you have people around the equator with darkly pigmented skin because that's where they need the most protection against ultraviolet radiation, and then people closer to the poles with a lot less pigmentation in their skin. So this pigment, melanin, is found in various concentrations in various people. And some people, if they go outside in the sun for a while, can actually produce melanin temporarily. How many of you, I see a few of you, actually have a tan, okay? <laughs> it's sort of a forbidden thing to do these days, but uh, tanning is the body's response to seasonal ultraviolet radiation. And it was an important response that evolved in many areas of the world where you get an intermediate amount of ultraviolet radiation throughout the year. So that's the interesting story, that's an abridged interesting story of, of human skin color. The last part that's very, very interesting about human skin is that we do so much with it culturally. We don't do very much with our other organs. We may talk about our heart, we may think about our eyes, but what do you do with your pancreas, with your liver? You don't do very much with these. But the skin, it's out there, it's in the public eye, and we use it constantly to advertise ourselves. We use it even involuntarily, even for those of you who put no decoration on yourself as you came out today, or for those of you who have no permanent decorations on your skin, your skin tells a lot about your state of health. It immediately gives a signal to the, any observer about how old you are, about how much sun exposure you've had, and what your likely ancestry is. So even before I, I can see you from 50 or 100 yards away, I already know a fair amount about you just by looking at your skin from a distance. As you get closer, I learn even more before you open your mouth. And if you have a certain amount of makeup on of a particular kind, or if you have tattoos of various kinds and in various positions, I learn even more about you before you have to say anything. We use these 
different cultural mechanisms to great advantage to, to give people a lot of information about ourselves before they even talk to us. And in fact, in today's modern society where speedy interactions are more the rule than the exception, more and more people rely on this kind of signaling on specific kinds of makeup to designate a specific fashion or a specific, I'm thinking here of, of people who get all up in, you know, sort of black and white in the goth look, which was very popular about 10 years ago. Um, immediately, this kind of cosmetic treatment um, designates a particular group affiliation and an aspiration. What's so interesting is that there's a difference between cosmetics that you apply every day or when you feel like it and something like a tattoo or a piercing. Many of you, uh, especially older folks in here, may have heard their children or their grandchildren saying, oh, I'm going to get a tattoo. And you sort of hold your head and you say, oh, my God. Because you can't relate to it as a, as a visual medium of expression. You think that it's a foolish thing to do. I've interviewed quite a, a lot of people, both old and young, who have gotten tattoos in the last 10 years. And I tell you they're not foolish, um, or at least for the most part are not foolish. They think extremely carefully about it because they want a tattoo to be another symbol of themselves, of, an, of extremely important experience or a belief that they hold dear to them. And so tattoos are not something that people undertake frivolously. The vast majority of people who decide to get one think extremely carefully about the design, the placement, the content, the nuance, you name it. Because it is permanent, it is them, it speaks to their very deeply held uh, aspirations about themselves. So in that way, it's, they're very different from cosmetics. And I think they're a very, very interesting cultural statement. They become extremely popular in the last <laughs> five to ten years for reasons that we can talk about. The last uh, thing that I'm going to, uh, to uh, bring out to you, which I think is remarkably important about human skin and really goes along with the first uniqueness of human skin being naked, is that we use our skin tremendously to gather information about our environment through the sense of touch. Now, a lot of animals use their sense of touch on their skin, but we use ours tremendously, especially the touch that is concentrated on the tips of our fingers and on our face. You know how sensitive the tips of your fingers and your lips and face are, especially if you have an injury, you feel this immediately. But just think about it, and you can test this right now. Just think about your fingers feeling the texture, the fine texture and coolness of the desk and the difference between the desk and the paper or whatever. The incredible, exquisite sensitivity of our fingers. We use the sense of touch imbued deeply in parts of our skin to gather a huge amount of information about our environment and about each other. Oh, you have cold hands. Are you okay? I mean, you may not have cold hands, but I'm just saying that. You know, I'm sure 
you know, I'm sure your mother or, you know, someone has come up to you, oh, oh, are you nervous? Your hands are sweaty. These, we, we tell a tremendous amount about things and about each other through the sense of touch. And this is something that humans have elaborated to a tremendous extent. What is so interesting is that humans as social primates evolved to constantly touch one another. When we look at our primate relatives, we see animals that are constantly touching one another when they live in social groups. Humans also in, uh, in what we would call uh, fairly simple agrarian or hunter-gatherer societies also have a tremendous amount of physical touch that is exchanged between them. Our society has rather legislated against a lot of touch. And I, all of you are, are good examples of this right now. Most of you are sitting very, very nicely with your, with your hands, you know, contained. You're not touching one another. If you were a group of chimpanzees, you'd all be intertwined with one another, uh, touching each other and grooming one another uh, because we're irrepressible touchers. Uh, so this is something that is a very important part of our legacy, uh, and we tend to discount its importance. Touch is in fact extremely important to normal human development, to the development of children, and to normal physiological well-being. It's well known, for instance, that, that individuals in nursing homes thrive better if they are touched and hugged rather than if they are just allowed to, to lie down with, with good care, but without being touched. So this is a very important part of human evolution that we tend not to think about because we live in such a touch-averse society and also because we tend to communicate with one another through remote modes of communication on the email, text message, or, or what have you. So we tend to be out of touch, literally and figuratively. Anyway, I would love to talk to you more about this, you know, any of these topics in the next, you know, 35 or so minutes available to us. So please, yes, yes. A uh, question about the uh, northern uh, sun. Uh, blue eyes, blue eyes and brown yes. eyes also have the same correlation. Is it because there's less number of hours in the day of sunlight or is it because of the direction of the sun? Well, what's interesting is that it, it's a little bit of both. But mostly it has to do with the ultraviolet light content of the sunlight. As we get farther toward the poles, the, the sun must come from a more oblique angle. And so the shorter wavelengths are filtered out by the thick atmosphere through which the, the sun's rays must penetrate. And so although you do get sun on the ground, most of that sunlight is actually bereft of ultraviolet light content because the ultraviolet light has a lot of energy and it can easily lose energy when it has to pass through various thicknesses of the atmosphere. Yeah. In the invention of clothing, what goes yes. with it? Be explained as an attempt to protect against the sun. What, what a good question, invention of clothing. I think the invention of clothing had to do with protection against the sun and, and as, as a main thing. But I think also it had to do with protection against abrasion. Because one of the, the interesting things that fur and hair does on a, on a dog or on any hairy animal 
is that it protects the skin against normal bumps and grinds and, and, and things that would normally attack the surface of naked skin. Clothing protects against the sun, but it is essentially our, uh, our fur coat, as it were, to protect against normal scuffs and scrapes. Interestingly, and I'll just digress briefly on this, our skin does have a few unique anatomical properties. And one of those properties is that it is more abrasion resistant, scuff resistant, as it were, than our, our relative skin, our primate relative's skin. And so although we've been very good at evolving more of this tough waterproof barrier on the surface of our skin, we are still much more subject to scuffs and scrapes than animals who have hair. So I think it's a combination of protection against uh, uh, the sun, but more protection against abrasion. And significantly, indigenous people who have lived long time, for long periods of time, thousands of years in the tropics, mostly don't wear very many clothes because the presence of clothes does inhibit evaporation by sweating if the clothes are close to the body. About goosebumps and what Ooh. you found in your research oh, yeah. in relationship to the evolution of the skin and yeah. goosebumps. Well, as, uh, as hair-bearing animals, even though our hairs are little, we have uh, tiny little muscles at the base of each hair follicle. And those muscles are actually controlled not by the conscious will, but they're under involuntary control. So if you're very cold, these little muscles are activated by involuntary so-called sympathetic nerve fibers that are part of the autonomic nervous system. And these, uh, these allow your hair to come up. Also, if you're very excited, or agitated or angry, you'll see the same expression because this same nervous system that is involved in the so-called fight or flight reaction will trigger the, uh, the contraction of those tiny little muscles. So they're itty weeny little pieces of muscle at the base of each hair follicle. And we tend to see them uh, they're, they're more active during anger uh, on the back of the neck and the hair and the shoulders. You see this especially in, in non-human animals. But if you have, and I don't encourage you to do this, if you happen to see a naked human who's very angry and the, that, that person has to have, happens to have some body hair, you will see the hair on their shoulders and neck stand up just like it would in a, in a non-human animal. Yeah. I have a question, um, because when I was 18, I kind of developed a skin allergy to mm -hmm. my horse's hair, get hives, and how is that different from, like, say, nasal or respiratory ah. allergy? One of the interesting things about skin is that there are a lot of cells from the immune system that migrate into the skin during development. Because you figure you've got this huge area, of exposed part of the body, that has to be some of the body's most important defenses against bacteria, viruses, chemicals, all sorts of things. And so we have 
so-called immigrant cells that come into the skin in the course of the early development of the skin in the human embryo and fetus. So as you're developing these, these immune cells, and they, they're the ones who are very alert to things like dander, bacteria, you, you name it, foreign bodies and particles. And some people have more reactive skin because they are more, their immune cells in their skin are more reactive. And some people uh, are reactive in both their skin and their nose, or it alternates as they get older, and you find different allergies manifest themselves in different systems because the immune system cells in the skin might become more active at particular times, or the ones inside lining the epithelium might become more active. So it has a lot to do with your changing body chemistry as you get older. But it's fascinating, and, and the the reaction in your skin is caused by these highly alert immune system cells that are present there. But what do you make of the popularity of tattoos? Yeah. Um, tattoos, I think, have become more popular uh, quite remarkably because they are very visible on people that are given high status in our society. So that when, you know, Angelina Jolie or someone of that stature walks on the red carpet at the, at the Academy Awards and has a tattoo on her shoulder and she's given lots of social status and high status. Many, many suggestible people in the audience will say, God, she's so cool, she's so beautiful, I want that. And we are enormously imitative as a species. If we think something is cool, is going to garner us higher status or make us look more acceptable among our peers, we will take this on. Now, uh, in my generation, you know, it was sort of wearing blue jeans and having interesting embroidery on your construction shirt or something, you know. Now it's actually transferring those patterns directly to the body. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting thing, but I think it has been uh, occasioned, or this dramatic increase has been as a result of high status individuals and then their images being promulgated in global media so that you can see it on every cell phone, on every, you know, podcast, on every, you know, TV image. You, you're constantly bombarded with it. And it's, and there's no social opprobrium attached to it. Rather, it's seen as something as interesting, praiseworthy, oh, isn't that, isn't that, you know, fascinating. What about the damages to the skin? Yeah, well, apart from, you know, parents or dermatologists, there are very few naysayers out there. I, I'm of the, the opinion that people should be very, very careful before they get a tattoo and know everything about, uh, the artist who's going to do the tattoo, the ink that they're going to use, and also uh, what it would take to remove that tattoo if they decided later on that they, that they didn't want it. And this is where most dermatologists really, really uh, come to the fore and say the, the damage that is incurred to the skin by a tattoo is, it's not significant, but it is, uh, it is painful. It causes extreme pain. In order to have a tattoo effectively removed, you have, 
have to have multiple lengthy treatments. And if you have gone to a bad tattoo artist who uses cheap ink, the byproducts of the ink, when they break down under the laser removal treatment, are toxic, or at least some of them are toxic. And so in that way, a tattoo can be dangerous. However, when young people have it in their mind to do something, you can, you, you can list these things you know, uh, you know, very categorically and very authoritatively, and it's not going to make a hill of beans a difference. So um, I, I encourage you to, you know, to, to go through this, uh, but you know, be prepared that you know, your, your daughter or daughters may, may want to go ahead anyway, because they, they just see it as something they really want to do as a mode of self-expression. We now understand most distinction, racial distinctions yes. to be literally skin deep. And I'd be interested in hearing a very sort of short history of the scientific understanding, the sequence of events by which we came to that recognition. Obviously, it was thought that those distinctions were enormous, not very long. Well, what's so interesting, uh, it, it's a great question. And in fact, I'm writing a book about this right now, about skin color, uh, the biological significance of skin color, and all the things that humans have done with skin color through time. Um, What's interesting is that some of the first people to actually recognize that there were different groups in the world with different skin colors were European, I'll call them naturalists for the sake of, of argument, who worked in the late 17th and early 18th century. And many of them, interestingly, thought, this is really interesting. They didn't array people in any kind of hierarchy, but rather they said, oh, you find dark people here, and you find uh, sort of yellowish people here, and you find light white people here, and reddish people here. Isn't that interesting? What became divisive, in, in a way, about skin color was that the knowledge that different people had different skin colors um, was used to many groups' disadvantage when, well, during broadly the era of European colonization. It was not exclusively a, a problem of European colonization, but primarily. And what happened was that uh, people who were leaving, let's say, on a, on a tall sailing ship from Portugal or the UK or a similar country, would be mostly lightly pigmented and would definitely have a lot of cultural capital behind them as they set off on their journey. And they knew that people of different, uh, different colors and appearances existed. And they, when they encountered them, all of a sudden this situation became one of inequality rather than just different. So what had originally been portrayed in the, the history of European naturalist thought as simply differences between people became all of a sudden a superior group that is encountering a group that they want to exploit for something or another, whether it be people, raw materials, or both. And so um, what we see is the beginning of a so-called racial hierarchy based primarily on color arising in various countries. And we find different elaborations of it in parts of different parts of Europe and in their different colonies.
each colony has their own sort of system of racial categories. There's nothing absolute about it and would definitely have a lot of cultural capital behind them as they set off on their journey. And they knew that people of different, uh, different colors and appearances existed. And they, when they encountered them, all of a sudden this situation became one of inequality rather than just different. So what had originally been portrayed in the, the history of European naturalist thought as simply differences between people became all of a sudden a superior group that is encountering a group that they want to exploit for something or another, whether it be people, raw materials, or both. And so um, what we see is the beginning of a so-called racial hierarchy based primarily on color arising in various countries. And we find different elaborations of it in parts of different parts of Europe and in their different colonies. Each colony has their own sort of system of racial categories. There's nothing absolute about it. Each one was sort of defined according to the, the, the time at which it occurred and the, the types of groups that were intermixed. That's why you find in the United States we, we have particular racial categories. If you look at Brazil, Ghana, the Dominican Republic, uh, India, all of these countries have different modes of classifying people, either according to races or other groups. Skin color figures in all of them, but they're all sort of arbitrary. So that's a, that's a very short answer, but in a sense we have constructed these things based on different power inequality relationships. But what is significant biologically is that beginning in the late 60s and 1970s, using the tools of molecular biology that were, and genetics that were emerging at the time, various scientists undertook to do major surveys of the differences and similarities between human groups. And what they recognized was that humans as a species are tremendously homogeneous and that we have these, you know, small differences in our genetics that have large physical manifestations, but they're actually based on very few real sort of DNA genetic differences. So we may see ourselves as being, oh, very different in our skin color or in our eye color or what have you, but these are attributable to a tiny handful of genes. We now know, for instance, that the human genome con, uh, com is composed of roughly you know, 30 to 40,000 genes. There is probably less than 1,000 of these that are responsible for the major differences in appearance between people. And I'm, I'm, I think 1,000 is going to turn out to be maximum. Amount. So these teeny-weeny differences um, genetically that have led to major differences in appearance. What's interesting is that we, as highly visually oriented animals, love to classify one another according to our appearance. 
primates use their, their sense, their, their visual sense, as the major way to gather information about each other and their environment. And so we don't know that, you know, that our skin color is caused by 16 genes. All we know is that I look somewhat different than you, and I look quite a bit different from you, the, the young lady behind you. So uh, we, we make these unnatural uh, and elaborated differences uh, based on what turn out to be extremely small different genetic differences between one another. And I think one of the, the wonderful triumphs of this genetic work and the Human Genome Project as it has evolved in the last 10 years has been to show that we as a species are tremendously, are unified by, you know, 99.96% of our genes and differ conspicuously in only a few. And, and some of those are reflected in our appearance and we've placed inordinate importance on these in so-called classification schemes over the years. But definitely race is a socially constructed concept. Abnormalities of the skin, in particular <clears throat> cancer or yes. diseases, <clears throat> anything in the history on that? Well, abnormalities of the skin uh, are very interesting and skin cancer is an interesting problem because we as humans, being very long-lived primates now, are subject to increasing amounts of skin cancer because skin cancer is due to damage being caused to the DNA in the skin. And that sets up a pattern of abnormal growth in the skin and sometimes this can be very modest very slow growing. Other times it can be much more fast growing and very dangerous. But um, these are, we see skin cancer as a problem in modern humans basically for two reasons. The first is that we live too long or we live longer than most of our ancestors did. So most of us in this room by rights uh, 50,000 years ago would be dead. I'm not trying to insult any of you, but it's just, just a, a fact. Um, and then the second thing is that many of us live quite a distance away from where our ancestors hailed from. So, uh, for instance, um, if I can take you as an example, your ancestors come from uh, northern, the northern part of the British Isles. Is that correct? Yes, yes, Wales and Germany. As I, I'm taking you as a, as a, as a good example because uh, you're, you have the, a classic sort of Northwestern European uh, appearance. And what is interesting about people of, of her appearance is that they are now found throughout North America and many of them live in extremely sunny places. Her appearance and also yours and that of several other people in the audience is extremely susceptible to damage from the sun because uh, your ancestors evolved in an area where there was very little ultraviolet radiation. They didn't need to have pigment, very much pigment in the skin and there was in fact active evolution to remove pigment from the skin so that you could produce more vitamin D in your skin. But the problem comes in is when these populations now go on vacation in Cabo San Lucas and, and live in northern Australia and, and, other, and other places like that because their skin is out of place. 
And we think as humans, we've got this tremendous hubris as a species. We think we're so <laughs> clever and we can avoid all these problems and we can fly here and fly there and take a pill and everything will be better. Well, our skin absorbs a lot of these, of these problems without us recognizing it consciously. And we, we might suffer uh, in the short term uh, a sunburn, What's interesting is that for people who are darkly pigmented, and we have a, a, a few darkly pigmented, naturally darkly pigmented people here, um, what's interesting there is that when darkly, naturally darkly pigmented people live in very low UV areas, the northern United States, northern Canada, even worse, the UK, Scandinavia, they have just the opposite problem. Their skin is so good at screening against ultraviolet radiation that they can't make enough vitamin D in their skin, and many of them suffer from vitamin D deficiencies. So. Uh, we, you know, we gallivant around the globe and we, you know, we just take for granted that we're so damn clever that we've, we've basically uh, transcended all of our biological limitations. Well, we haven't. And skin cancer is just one of the, one of the reminders that we haven't. Yeah. If there really is red and yellow pigmentation, where yes. does that come from? Red and yellow is actually a form of the melanin pigmentation. When we when we look at the chemical composition of melanin in human skin, we find two major types. The first type is a, a very dark brown pigment called eumelanin or true melanin, which, which if we had it in a beaker would look sort of like dark brown sludge. That is the, the kind of pigment that is present in most of us. And when we get a tan, that is the kind of pigment that's produced by the melanin producing cells in the body. But in some people, and I, again, I'm going to use you as an example, um, they have the reddish-yellow type of melanin in their skin and hair. Uh, now, you don't have any freckles. Does anyone here? There? Uh, yes, uh, you may have some. Yes, <laughs> uh, some. This is the red-yellow melanin called pheomelanin, not eumelanin, and that imparts uh, a reddish yellow color to hair, but also to freckles, and it also helps to impart the so-called yellow color to people of, uh, in many East Asian populations, is some more than others. So it's a mixture of this uh, mostly dark brown eumelanin and then the lighter red-yellow pheomelanin that leads to the interesting mixture of pigments that we see in human skin and hair. Yeah. <clears throat> Vitamin D is, is clearly an essential... Oh, it's a big part of the story, yes. ...our, our skin uh, evolution. Uh, how about animals? Mm. In particular, are humans more needy? Mm. Because, for example, a wolf yes. lives up yes. in the northern climates, mm -hmm. then has yes, dark hair. a very, very good question. Yeah. Animals, everyone has to get vitamin D either by synthesizing it in their skin or by eating a vitamin D rich food. Now, with a carnivore like a wolf living in the northern tundra, uh, they can eat the organ meats, especially the liver and to a lesser extent muscle and fat of animals that have a 
a fair amount of vitamin D in them. So that by being carnivores, they are eating, or they can eat, concentrated sources of vitamin D. But if you all of a sudden put them on, you know, uh, graham crackers, okay, they don't do so well because they don't get enough vitamin D. And interestingly, in human populations that live at very high latitudes, such as uh, the Inuit Eskimo people living in northern Canada at Alaska, these people do extremely well when they have their native diet of high vitamin D rich foods with lots of fatty fish and marine mammals that have a lot of vitamin D in them. As soon as they switch to a mostly westernized diet with fast food but also lots of canned food and much less in the way of, of their fatty fish and marine mammals, they begin to suffer from almost catastrophic levels of vitamin D deficiencies, which can be terrible, especially in <coughs> growing children. And this is one of the, the major public health issues in northern Canada and Alaska today, because so many people have switched f away from these their, their more natural aboriginal diets to more westernized diets that are very lacking in vitamin D. But vitamin D is extremely important to, to our physiology. And I would say in the next five years, you're going to hear so much more about the important role that vitamin D plays in preventing not only softening of the bones and this kind of thing that we have known about for some time, but also that it prevents or it protects our immune system because our immune system retains a, a, or retains a good amount of its function because of vitamin of having enough vitamin D, uh, it will be linked to a seasonal affective disorder as a, as a psychological problem that many of us face throughout the year, and that it becomes a major public health issue because so many people now have indoor jobs or use sunscreen all the time and are preventing vitamin D production in their skin. Various surveys in the last five years have shown that anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of sort of normal office workers in the northern United States are vitamin D deficient. So, so they it's, should be taking they and D taking, taking a vitamin D supplement is the safest Thing because you, then you don't have to risk uh, potentially dangerous sun exposure. Because der we've, dermatologists have been <clears throat> enormously successful at getting people to wear you know, protective clothing and slap on sunscreen, so they don't want to tell people, well, just you know, bury yourselves and get news. <laughs> so we have to I, be, be culturally sensitive to these things. Yes. 